Open up with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to look now at chapter 1 and read verses... Thirty and thirty-one. First Corinthians one verses thirty and thirty-one. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's living and active word. Let's pray now and ask him to bless our time. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would use your word by your spirit to instruct us, to enlighten us, And Lord, to draw us even closer to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we find all wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. May his name be glorified this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. George Whitfield. Do you know the name George Whitfield? God's vessel used in the Great Awakening, a profound preacher and expositor of God's word. George Whitfield said this about 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Of all the verses in the book of God, this which I have now read to you, verse 30, is, I believe, one of the most comprehensive verses. What glad tidings does it bring to believers? What precious privileges are Christians herein invested with? How are all believers here led to the fountain of what is the everlasting love of God, the Father? Whitfield is right. The longer I walk in grace and study the beauty of the gospel and God's word, the more I keep coming back to 1 Corinthians 1 verses 30 and 31 as a kind of bedrock foundation for understanding not just who I am as a Christian, but all the Christian life. Indeed, every verse in 1 Corinthians 1 has kind of been building up to this crescendo that is verses 30 and 31, which we just read. The truth that we are as Christians to boast in, to glory in God. That's the exclamation point at the end of this chapter. In the Reformation, this was known as soli deo gloria, that our salvation was to the glory of God alone. And if this is true, and I think it is, it must be that every aspect of my salvation can only be attributed to God and his grace. In other words, our being saved is not a mix of 90% God's effort, 10% mine. In fact, it's not even 99.9% God's effort and then that 0.1% me. No, the biblical emphasis and, and the point of what Paul is underlining here is that God has done it all. He has saved us. And therefore, it is in God alone that we must boast solely Deo Gloria. We've seen that glorious theme already in our study of chapter 1, the repeated idea which Paul brings up over and over again that God calls his people to himself six times in chapter 1, We see Paul refer to God's effectual call 
We also see that God has chosen a people for himself. Verses 26 and following, three times back to back, telling us that God chooses us to salvation. And that God has given all the sustaining grace we need so that we are kept in order to make it home to glory. Whitfield is right. This is a glorious passage. In fact, I'd want to hasten to add to Whitfield's praise of this passage, the idea that in a world today where the concept of identity, boasting in identity, where the concept of identity has become this kind of new, all-consuming and ravenous God, and identity politics, philosophies of identity like intersectionality have given us new ways and words to worship this God. In this kind of highly polarized world where even the slightest misstep will bring swift judgment from this new God, I want to suggest that we are in desperate need of being reminded of the truths laid out here in verses 30 and 31. Consider, consider again the problem which Paul was addressing to the Corinthian church, a problem we've already spent some time looking at in previous weeks. It's the age-old problem of tribalism, right? I follow Paul. <laughs> I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. The church was being atomized and tribalized into little echo chambers, something I think we can all see is happening even now on a much larger scale in the wider world today. I read The Atlantic. I listen to NPR. I watch Fox News. I listen to The Daily Wire. Add to that the algorithm-driven feedback loop of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, where we're fed more and more of what we already click on and like and share, oh, we'll give you more of that. It's not at all a stretch to suggest that the internet is turning us into a kind of digital Corinth. I'm of this ideology. Well, I'm of that ideology. And sadly, so many of us are reaching our conclusions through little tweets or, or five-minute little videos posted here and there life-changing conclusions, relationship-forming or disforming conclusions. And I think as this continues in our online identities, it is no surprise that it seeps back into our analog, real-life identities, and even more sadly, into the body of Christ. What Paul has argued is that we reorient our identities to who we are by God's grace. That is, it is because of God that we are in, find our identity in, Jesus Christ. And when we get this, this all-encompassing truth, it injects within us a kind of humility, a real humi humility and humidity, a real humility that cuts away at the us versus them mentality that so kind of seeps through all society now. There's a humility in believing the gospel which enables us to count others as more important than ourselves, even if they believe different things politically than ourselves. There's a humility which enables us to boast not in ourselves and not in our own achievements, nor in any other identity-forming characteristic outside of who we are in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I want us to 
lock in this morning on verses 30 and 31 and kind of scrape out of this nutrient-rich passage all the meat and marrow we can get in our brief time. Notice first, I want us to see the sovereign source of our salvation, the beginning of verse 30. It is because of God that we are in Christ Jesus. That's the sovereign source of our salvation. Secondly, I want us to see the blessings of our salvation. The rest of verse 30, Christ is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And then thirdly, the aim, the aim of our salvation. Verse 31, to boast in the Lord. So first notice how Paul emphasizes here God's sovereign work in our salvation. And we see this explicitly in verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. In the Greek, you can read it as literally from him or of him. It is because of God and from God that anyone who is in Christ Jesus is in Christ Jesus. That's who the hymn in verse 30 is referencing. The hymn is God the Father. And Paul is reminding us that because of God, you and I are believers and are brought into union with our Savior, Jesus Christ. I think one thing that this does is remind us and highlight for us the love of God the Father. In other words, it's not as if God the Father is so angry in his wrath against us that it took the person of the Son to kind of assuage and appease the Father. Many of us have that conception of God. We need Jesus to twist the arm of God the Father in order that God the Father will be maybe a little bit kind with us? One God, God is one God. We, we, we believe that, right? We believe in one God. And the Father and the Son, as two persons within that one God, they are never at odds with each other. They're never at odds in their singular intended will. God, as one God, has one will. And so the will of the Father and the will of the Son are always the same. It's an identical will. Which means because God so loved us, even while we were yet still underneath his holy wrath and hatred, he sent his son to take that wrath on our behalf. And in so being that it was God's desire to save a people for himself, from himself. Hear that. It was God's desire to save a people for himself, from himself that God sent his only begotten son to acquire in his death the objects of God's saving love. I hope we know this. I preach it often, and I will, Lord willing, preach it to the end of my life, that the greatest problem that we need to be rescued from is God himself. And yet the greatest answer to that problem is God himself. It's a glorious doctrine being hinted here by Paul that God loves us through and through and that the love which is expressed and given to us in the person of Jesus Christ found its fount in the person of the Father. The Father sending the Son and the Son sending the Spirit. The Spirit to call us and to effectually turn our hearts so that we believe in Jesus so that we might be brought back to God the Father. Remember, Paul's point here is that God's love for us 
is not at all based on anything in us. Do you remember? Look back up at verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The emphasis here, friends, is on the surprising nature of God's electing love, not on the pedigree of those he's loved. Wait, God's loved us? God's loved me? Who am I? And that's the point. It's meant to lead us to glory in God alone. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Secondly, I want us to see the blessings of our salvation. The rest of verse 30, because of him, says Paul, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We need to emphasize here Paul's unique phrase that Christ became to us. That's who the who is referring to. Who became to us? Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We unpacked this in a deep way when Keith led us through that sermon series through Ephesians chapter 1 a couple of months ago where we looked intently at that phrase, in him, in him, in him, so that our salvation is not a salvation that is given to us kind of willy-nilly abstracted from the person of God, but it is a salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, insofar that anything that we have in terms of being saved is had by being united to the person of Jesus. Again, the question we asked a couple months ago was, how does the work of a Savior who died 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world, at all apply to us today? And the answer is that the Spirit of Christ unites the person to the Son who is Christ, the being of Christ, and insofar as he does that, as a husband and wife is joined together in marriage, so the believer and the Savior are joined together as one. Christ has become to us our salvation. And notice the four elements that he gives here, the four blessings, the, the, the benefits that we get. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. By ourselves, we are foolish. We are worldly and ignorant. We are lost in darkness. And when it comes to the things of the gospel and to the things of God, entirely uninsightful. But God has given us Christ, Christ who is the wisdom of God himself. And by being in Christ, now we partake in God's wisdom. We gain the mind of Christ. We begin to comprehend the things of God. We get the gospel. We get life in the spirit. We understand the word of God. And all of this comes by now being united to Christ. Friends, do you see how this injects humility within us? None of us became a believer 
because we opened up the Bible and in our own insight and wisdom understood it better than our neighbors. No, insofar as we believed in Jesus and were one with him, then we began to understand in wisdom all the things that God has given us in his word. Who am I but a fool saved by the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus? He's also become to us righteousness. By ourselves, we are entirely unrighteous. We walk in sin. We are from head to toe totally infused with the cancer and the corruption of unrighteousness and sin so that from our birth in the womb even, Paul tells us in Psalm 51, we were at enmity with God, walking opposed to and in rebellion to the one who created us. What that deserves is God's righteousness poured out in wrath. And yet what he's given us is God's righteousness in the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. We need Jesus, who is not only inherently righteous as the son of God, but now as the incarnate son of God, he lived righteously for us as a man. Every thought, every word, every deed, every resisting of temptation in his incarnation was a act of righteousness for us. And insofar as we now become one with him, we partake of that righteousness, not ours. Again, do you see the humility that it injects within us? When we stand before the judgment seat of God on the last day, and he asks us, why should I let you in? We, we, don't, we don't offer up our cookie crumbs of righteousness and say, well, look what I did for you. I, I preached in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did miracles in your name. I got up early on a Sunday morning in 90 degree weather and set up chairs in your name. To which he says, then why, my son? We only claim the righteousness of another, our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's become for us our righteousness. Our sanctification. We saw two weeks ago that sanctification means to be cut off from the world, to be holy. Well, what we lack is entirely any holiness at all. By ourselves, we are infused with the world. Not only our own unrighteousness, but we give in to the fads and the ways of the world. How quickly we look like and talk like and sound like and smell like the world. Interesting fact, I can tell you this is true in my own life and even true in other preachers' lives. Depending on who is president in the United States, your mannerisms and preaching begin to look a little bit more like that person, no matter who he is. Preachers in the 90s were constantly doing this because Bill Clinton would always do this. Uh, uh, during the early 2000s, you'd take a slower pause between your words because Obama would preach like that. I don't think Trump is coming out in me at all, but uh, we look like and sound like the world. What we need is to be cut off entirely and to look like and to sound like and to carry the aroma and the flavor of Jesus Christ. And we gain that, not through trying harder, but by being found in him. He has become for us our sanctification. And lastly, our redemption. Without him, we are enslaved 
to sin, enslaved to the world, and enslaved to the devil who, when he says jump, we jump. But in Christ, we're set free. The gospel is the new and better and more glorious exodus. In Christ, we have a better Moses who has walked us through the Red Sea and and parted the world so that we can find ourselves on the other side, totally cut off from slavery and now free in Christ Jesus. And friends, what that does, and I want to emphasize for us this morning, this, this minor point but one that we ought not to forget. What this does is that it sets our identity in Christ as preeminent. Not blue or red, not white or black. There is a pride that we can have that is a good pride in secondary things. This past weekend, we celebrated the pride of being in a country that is free, our Independence Day. That's a good pride to have. There is a pride that we can have of coming from our own cultures that influence who we are as people. But insofar as we take those characteristics, those identity-forming markers, and exalt them over the preeminent identity in Christ, we've lost sight of the gospel. Only in Christ should we find the culminating and all-encompassing and forming identity for any other identity that we have. Friends, I want you to see that Paul's point here is that grace is Jesus Christ. Grace is not an impersonalized blessing which God dispenses to us after we believe in Jesus. And it's as if, like, once we believed in Jesus, there's this unlocked treasure chest behind him, which is now full of blessings that we can go to and get. Jesus, the kind of guard of blessings. Grace is Jesus Christ, and all the fullness of his glory and all the benefits of grace are found in him. The Reformation not only emphasized soli deo gloria, but their accent and emphasis was on soli gratia in solus Christus. Grace alone in Christ alone. Their focus on grace placed Jesus Christ at the very heart and court of the life of the church. And brothers, sisters, that's something we desperately need reminding of today. The gospel is not a string of blessings that God gives to us. The gospel is Jesus Christ given to us with all the blessings we need for life and godliness in him, in him. This takes us lastly to our third point, the aim of our salvation. Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are who we are all to the aim, all to the end, that we might glorify God. God is wonderfully selfish in that way. And praise God that he is. Because what else ought we to worship more glorious and precious and enjoyable than him? What is the chief end of man? That we glorify God and enjoy him forever. The aim of our salvation is the enjoyment of the God who has saved us so that we boast in, glorify nothing else but he and he alone. 
we gather Sunday after Sunday for the sole purpose of worshiping God, worshiping and enjoying God. This morning, we will enjoy him in the most perfect way that Christ has given us, in a way that we've not been able to do in a long time. And it is a blessing to do so by partaking together in the Lord's Supper. And the picture of the Lord's Supper it is a tangible picture of exactly what Paul is saying here. We, we eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ insofar as those elements picture the person of Jesus Christ becoming one with us. As the bread and as the cup kind of enter into us and become one with us and energize us in their nutrients. By faith, we believe in Jesus and he becomes one with us and energizes us and enables us by his grace toward us. Friends, as we open up this kind of 1960s packet that may last for another hundred years if goes unopened. Don't cast your eyes so much on what is actually in your hands, but use that as a springboard, a sign as it is to the fullness of Jesus Christ, whom by faith we eat and we drink. And insofar as our hearts by faith see Jesus Christ, no matter what these little packets do to us, no matter how they taste, Insofar as we see Jesus Christ, we are eternally nourished to enjoy him and the benefits of his grace toward us. God has given us Christ who has become to us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. You can go ahead and open your packets now and I will pray for us before we partake. Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Lord, as we partake together now of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, we pray, Lord, that you would feed us by your spirit on the person of Christ. And Lord, remind us that our glorying ought to be in him and him alone. We pray this, Lord, not only for our good and sanctification, but that we might honor you and enjoy you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, on the night that Jesus met with his disciples before going to the cross, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he broke the bread and he distributed it to his disciples. And insofar as we eat this bread, we enjoy God and signify our oneness with Christ in so doing. So let us together eat in worship to Christ. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together not only in remembrance of what he's done for us, but are soon to be with him and one with him forevermore in person. Amen. Father, we do thank you. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would be more and more conformed to the wisdom, righteousness, sanctification of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.